Welcome to the Jersey Herd podcast brought to you by Jersey Finance. In this podcast, we will speak about the latest news, views and insights on Jersey's finance industry. Hi, I'm Adam Brown, Strategic Projects Manager and the FinTech Lead at Jersey Finance. Today we are discussing technology and the legal sector as part of our research project, the opportunities and threats posed to law tech to the legal industry in Jersey, which we started back in 2019 in partnership with the University of Birmingham. But why law tech? Well, lawyers and law firms in Jersey are central to our business flows. They operate across all our sectors of funds, banking, private wealth and capital markets. And through our research, we hope to be able to provide clarity and insight to our members on this subject. But I would just say, a lot of the findings of the report and a lot of the conclusions apply across all sectors. So really, if you're interested in technology and adoption and trends and insight, this isn't just a legal specific piece. I think there's really something in this podcast that we're recording today for all our members. Through a series of interviews with leading professionals within the legal services sector in Jersey, we've gathered a number of insights into how law firms are preparing for new technologies, or indeed are already using them. And I'm going to come back to this subject shortly, but I wanted to introduce today's guest, and I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Lisa Webley. Lisa is the Chair in Legal Education and Research and the Head of Birmingham Law School at the University of Birmingham. Lisa, can you please introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit more about your work and your role at Sepler? Thank you, Adam. So yes, as you said, I'm Lisa Webley. I'm a professor at Birmingham Law School and head of Birmingham Law School as well. Um, And I also head up the research side of the Centre for Professional Legal Education and Research at the University of Birmingham. And what we do in that centre is um, develop ways of educating and training um, the lawyers of the future. We look at what's happening in legal practice now and what we think is likely to happen in legal practice um, in the near term. Um, We look at critical questions of law, ethics and legal practice, access to justice. Um, We work with law firms, barristers chambers, legal regulators to consider ethics, regulation, um, education, training, equality and diversity. Some of the big questions um, facing lawyers um, and the legal and justice systems. At Jersey Finance, our digital aspiration is to be the easiest international finance centre to do business with remotely in a digital world. And when we consider that a large number of Jersey clients are not actually local or based in Jersey, well, it's really the technology and the ease of doing business that will help Jersey achieve its goal. At the last count, there are over 1,700 employees in legal services activities in Jersey, which is roughly 12% of the finance sector workforce. So this is a vital part of the finance sector, and again, it is part of the island's economy as a whole. At a global level, the topic of law tech is relatively underexplored. Yes, there are pockets of activity and big law are making investments in law tech, but law tech in itself doesn't appear to be advanced as the other types of tech that are out there, such as fintech, regtech, wealth tech. The list goes on. Everything's got a tech. So Lisa, with all these techs out there, things can get quite confusing. Would you say it's fair to suggest that law tech does or doesn't have the profile of the other techs? You're absolutely right, Adam. Um, FinTech's got a a very clear brand. Um, People know a good deal about it, or at least have heard about it. When it comes to law tech, um, one of the challenges is that, firstly, lots of law firms aren't yet involved in using or developing law tech. And the sort of AI law tech uh, startup um, community is relatively small. And so at the moment, there's relatively little knowledge. There are some really interesting developments. There are pockets of excellence and innovation. And that came out 
in the research as well. Okay, so that's a helpful piece, Lisa. Let's take a step back for our listeners and really define law tech at a general level. So we could define law tech as technology that supports the legal services industry, and this may or may not include intelligent and digital technologies such as artificial intelligence. So when we're talking about law tech, we're probably talking about one of four different things in terms of categories. And then in addition to that, we're talking about a whole series of different technologies. So I'll start with sort of the the genres or categories, if you like. Um, So why or how may you make use of law tech? Well, you might make use of law tech technology in a legal context for the firm in terms of back office systems and enabling legal practice. So there are a series of, of tools there which allow you to integrate different types of legal work, amalgamate data that you might use for your clients, file documents um, electronically, verify things, business analytics, those kinds of things. And actually quite a lot of law firms are engaged in some of that stuff. Then there's law tech, which is there to review documents. So lawyers spend quite a lot of time reviewing documents. And there's technology that can help with, for example, things like contract review and analysis. Um, That can be very useful in transactional work. It can sometimes be used also in the context of litigation disputes as well. Then there's technology that can augment and assist with developing legal expertise, legal analysis, predicting what might happen in certain contexts and allow lawyers to develop more sophisticated strategies for their clients, either in the context of um, transactions or in the context of disputes and litigation. So those things are usually used by lawyers but may not always be just used by lawyers. And then there's something that most lawyers are used to but won't necessarily think of as law tech and that's legal research tools that allow lawyers first of all to be able to surface the key legislation and precedents they need to inform their decision making and develop their cases but also to be able to gather evidence in support of their client's case. So those are the the four main groupings, if you like. So turning to the research itself, the vision for this work was to really develop a a deep understanding of where Jersey is on the curve and to provide clarity on the subjects at hand within the subject of law tech and Jersey's legal and financial services. So Lisa, can you please tell us a little bit more about the research and the process that we undertook? Yes, of course, Adam. So the research in Jersey built on research that I've done elsewhere. What we did was to, first of all, develop a series of questions that we thought it would be helpful to examine in a Jersey context. Some of those questions relate to what's being done at the moment and what law firms are planning to do. The opportunities that um, lawyers and law firms felt that law tech could afford them. The threats as they perceived them to current ways of working and also to, to the jurisdiction. We also looked at the things that were enablers which made it, well, easier to be able to adopt law tech. And we looked at the things which were blockers or perceived blockers. And we did this in a number of different ways. So the first way was through a series of interviews with those who worked in legal services um, in Jersey. We interviewed um, 
just over half, or we had representatives from just over half of the law firms in, in Jersey. And those interviews took place in the third and fourth quarter of um, last year, last calendar year. So we did that first. Those interviews were often about an hour, sometimes a bit longer. Once we got going, um, talking about law tech and the development of the firm, any enablers, any blockers, um, opportunities, um, the interviews often ran longer than we than we had originally planned. And people gave their time very generously. I ended up talking to some people who were partners in law firms. Some people were chief technology officers or IT um, directors in law firms sometimes it was both lawyer and uh, and somebody in charge of um, IT or HR or change management in the firm um, we had people who had a, a job relating to education and development within the firm it was quite a broad spectrum of people and, and everybody gave really interesting insights Often the things that they found to be um, very easy to convince colleagues about in their firm and the things that were a little bit more challenging for them to get across in terms of how law tech might support the development of the firm and actually augment their legal practice rather than diminishing their experience of being a lawyer. Um, so we, we did those those interviews. Um, those were recorded with permission, you know, and uh, so that they could be analysed effectively. And then from there... A draft report was was drawn up. Obviously, that was was given to you and, and and to Jersey Finance. We then gave the sort of edited highlights, the high level findings to to a large audience in uh, early December. And from that feedback, I went back and I reanalyzed all of the interviews to see whether there was any way of answering some of the questions that were posed during that event. Developed the final report, which we're just launching, and there we are. Thanks, Lisa. So that's a really comprehensive summary. I think it's important that we have such diverse views of the legal sector that we've really taken the time to engage many different people from many parts of the sector, not just those that are front of house, but those that are also holding things together, those that are in the technology functions. And really, this gives us a really granular piece of work and a really good and strong, robust picture that I think I'm really pleased and proud to stand behind. Before we go on to talk about the findings... I think it's really important to highlight that the research phase was undertaken before the COVID-19 pandemic. And what we've seen during and, and indeed since is the situation has forced a paradigm shift in technology and ways of working. And look, let's not confuse this with deep law tech adoption, but some firms have by necessity started or accelerating a technology journey and they've already made some quick wins when it comes to law tech or even more broadly technology and digital transformation as a whole. Lisa. I'm going to hand over to you for the next few minutes to talk about the report and the findings. Can you tell us the main points that came out of the report and what really surprised you when you were speaking to our members? Thanks, Adam. So um, I think the thing that surprised me most um, was the fact that there was such a diversity um, of um, experience um, in such a small jurisdiction. And I'm not sure why that surprised me, but but it did. So when we think about the sort of the um, law firm development um, on a on a law tech spectrum. We tend to think of it in sort of five stages of maturity. We don't have to. I don't really know why we often think of it in five, but we do. Um, and so the, the first stage um, is a stage where um, people are aware of law tech, but they're really not at all sure what they should be doing with it. Um, and then right at the top, at the fifth stage, um, the law firm or, or chambers is leading with technology. What became apparent when I was um, doing the interviews was that you've got all five in Jersey. Um, 
everybody I talked to was extremely committed to making sure they delivered a high quality of legal expertise and service to their clients. So that was the case across the board. Huge commitment um, to that um, and to making sure that they deliver um, not just an excellent service, um, not just high quality legal work, um, but also to be efficient, um, to be cost effective, um, to be at the forefront where they could be in terms of quality and in terms of cost. So that was true for all. But then the extent to which law firms and chambers felt that they had what they needed to be able to harness law tech to deliver on quality and on cost was quite different. Um, and so I suppose the, the, the spectrum to an extent ranged from um, law firms, a good number of law firms, that were very interested in making greater use of technology, but were struggling a bit to know quite what they should be investing in. Investment is obviously a big, big commitment. So they were saying, look, I really do need to know that where we spend our money is going to be the right place. I'm going to have to make a robust case for this. And whatever we do, we are going to be stuck with for at least five, if not ten years. And in many of those instances, the people that I was talking to were saying, you know, we, may, we heavily invested five years previously, and we've now found that those legacy systems don't talk effectively to new systems that we need. And, um, you know, we were promised that that technology would be supported for a long period of time. It now isn't, and we're sort of left with core systems, which are really problematic. And moving forward, we, we just need to come up with something that's going to, to interconnect with everything that we've got or a solution that does all of that for us. Um, so those law firms, those people that I was talking to, were really, really interested in getting help to know how they get from where they are now to, to a place where they've got robust back office systems before they start moving on to the lawyer-facing, client-facing systems. And then probably at the midpoint um, of that five stages of, of development, you've got firms that felt they got their back office systems sorted and now they were dipping their toe into some of the more um, novel law tech solutions for their lawyers and recognising that that had challenges because um, they needed to support lawyers with, with training and not just a bit of training, but training in the systems, but also training in thinking about how they do the work differently. And then what you had right at the um, fifth stage of development was you know, a couple of law firms that had completely reconfigured the way in which they do their legal work. And technology for them was, a, was purely an enabler. Whilst they were leading using technology, the technology was the bit that supported a completely different way of doing their legal work. Technology wasn't the point. Technology was one component as part of a huge change management programme which looked and reconceived um, the law firm as a very different way of providing legal services to clients. Thanks for that comprehensive summary. So would I be right really in saying and summarising that the biggest benefits of LawTech are to improve speed and client satisfaction while at the same time as reducing costs and increasing productivity? So I think one of the things that is a real benefit to small jurisdictions is, on the whole, they can be more fleet of foot. There are fewer things holding organisations back. 
because usually regulatory frameworks are more supportive and that certainly came through in the research. Um, the research didn't identify a wide range of regulatory impediments to developing legal practice augmented by, by law tech. So the fact that, that the jurisdiction is nowhere near as hierarchical, the fact that when problems are identified, they can be resolved quite quickly. For example, you know, partway through the research, um, I was reporting to you that there were concerns about e-signatures and the fact whether they would or, or wouldn't be accepted in, in Jersey. And, and that was resolved incredibly quickly. So there are all sorts of ways in which the jurisdiction itself can support um, innovation. I think one of the challenges is that a lot of the know-how, a lot of the technological know-how is off the island. That came through as well in, in, the, in the research, that um, those in law firms who didn't feel um, sufficiently knowledgeable to know quite where to invest the firm's money for technology needed to get some support from off the island in order to move forward. Um, but I think that's perfectly possible. Um, that expertise is nearby. Um, it doesn't need to be expertise which is embedded within the firm necessarily. It can be brought in on a consultancy basis. And, you know, it's perfectly possible for firms to learn from each other. And I think there was some appetite from some of the firms to, to learn from each other. So I think Jersey is well placed to be able to, to harness um, law tech. And I think there's an appetite for it. And that bodes very well. Certainly a number of firms are doing so very effectively and that suggests that far more can as well. Lisa, you touched on some of the surprising findings there. So what one thing surprised you the most and what would you recommend to our listeners to address this? That's a really interesting question and quite a difficult one. I think there were two things rather than one that um, surprised me. Well, one I've already touched upon, which is the diversity. Given how small the jurisdiction is and how relatively few um, law firms and chambers there are in Jersey. Seeing such a diversity of um, technology development was was surprising, but but I've said that already. I think I think the other thing that that, that came through, um, which surprised me a bit, well, surprised me is probably the wrong thing, but I was conscious that it was a real preoccupation, were concerns about data security. Um, and of course, those are entirely understandable. It is it is extremely important um, that law firms have very robust data security protocols. But then there are a whole number of other law firms in Jersey which um, have managed to overcome these concerns, use cloud-based solutions, whether they're private clouds or more public ones. And so I think that came up as a blocker more frequently than I anticipated and certainly more frequently than um, has come up in, in, in other jurisdictions. Okay, so that's two things. But yeah, okay, that's that's great, really helpful. Thanks. And one of the myths and realities, what points repeatedly came up during the report and during the interviews with, with our members? I'm not sure there were many myths. I think there were some differences which were interesting, particularly in the context of client concerns or perceived client concerns about confidentiality in the context of where data was being stored and how data was being transmitted, um, which I found quite fascinating. And so some people I talked to indicated that their clients were particularly concerned about data storage, data transmission, um, were very worried about whether or not data could be guaranteed as confidential, which, of course, makes perfect sense in the context of the work that's being done by these firms. Having said that, there were other firms of a similar size that appeared to me to have similar types of clients undertaking similar kinds of work. 
and those firms reported quite a different experience and that there weren't client concerns about confidentiality and storage and transmission and they were actively pro the law firm making use of new technology and being able to engage with them digitally in a seemingly very sophisticated way. So, so I found that quite interesting. The other things that came through were about the realities of needing agreed protocols, for example, agreed protocols for anti-money laundering and agreed protocols in the context of e-signatures, particularly for those firms that were multi-jurisdictional. Um, those firms that were very much Jersey-based, serving Jersey clients, would make use of the Jersey courts, were less preoccupied by this. They felt on the whole they understood what the standards were and they, they, they knew, therefore, what they needed to do to be compliant. But a number of firms said that the, the challenge of knowing what package one can use, what protocol one can use, that would be operational across multi-jurisdictional jurisdictions was a challenge for them and one which meant that they were either a little bit more conservative um, in embracing some of these digital innovations or just felt that they weren't able to safely for their clients or were doing so but were having to jump through multiple hoops such that it was relatively inefficient rather than more efficient and so on that basis there were a number of things that I think could bear some attention um, so that firms can make efficient use of technology and do so in a way which they consider to be robust secure um, for their clients. Okay so in the purest sense some of those are not specifically law tech but are points of friction you mentioned electronic signatures is a really good case in point where industry have come together to identify that there's a problem and really collaborate to drive forward a solution and make sure that everyone wins and wins together. And really that's interesting and it links back to the part we make repeatedly about how Jersey is a great place and how we're trying to move that ease of doing business piece forward. So this feedback and really great examples are helpful for our members. Thank you. Productivity is a theme of interest for Jersey Finance. You spoke at our Jersey Means Business event in November last year where we launched our productivity research projects with CBR. So how do you see law tech and how do you see it more specifically contributing to productivity? The discussion about productivity was, was an interesting one and quite challenging to begin with until I got the terminology right. Because I think for some of the lawyers I talked to, not the HR and change management professionals or those in IT and, and technology, not those professionals, but for the lawyers, they saw conversations about productivity to be antithetical to um, expert, high-quality, bespoke legal services, which they prided themselves on, on, on providing to their clients. And of course, Jersey is known for high-quality, bespoke legal services, and so I can understand why something that appears to be antithetical to that would be problematic. When I changed the way in which we had the discussion in subsequent conversations, we got to a much more um, positive, I suppose, a, a meaningful um, discussion about technology improving productivity. Because in essence, productivity is the merging of quality and cost through efficiency, as opposed to driving down quality in order for things to cost less. And so when we started to talk about the ways in which technology might be able to support lawyer work, might be able to improve quality by, for example, reducing the number of times that somebody needs to key in 
important information into long and complex documents so that it only needs to be entered once and then the technology can replicate that throughout. It became apparent that technology could be used in service of one of the key roles of an excellent lawyer. And on a number of occasions we discussed that lawyers were in part there to eradicate risks for clients and where that's not possible to mitigate risks. That's what we're trained to do. That's often why people make use of lawyers. They want lawyers to make sure that they are operating legally um, and that whatever they do will be considered to be appropriate and robust um, rather than being potentially open to being unpicked subsequently. And so where we can use technology to mitigate risk, where we can remove some of the ways in which human beings through lapses of concentration can make errors, it may well be that technology can be used in a way which some would call productive, but others would say is furthering the aims of excellent lawyering. And so as we were working our way through those conversations, it became clear that we can use technology to improve quality, to do it in a way which is efficient, to um, provide a high quality service which is value for money and all of the lawyers were committed to that. They were all committed to a high quality of legal service that was value for money that clients recognised as being excellent and supporting their needs. And so technology in the end is a means through which to support rather than replace lawyering. It's there to augment bespoke legal practice rather than to um, take away, detract from the excellent work being done in Jersey. Coming back to the subject of AI, the debate continues as to what is and isn't true AI and what is and isn't AI specifically for law tech. And I don't think we need to go into the detail of this type of debate today, but can you give us a few positive examples of AI being used by law firms? This podcast is probably not the place um, for us to spend time discussing the, the tech wizardry which underpins um, much of the the AI-driven um, law tech that we've been talking about. But perhaps put simply, um, artificial intelligence mean, is a means by which a computer or a series of computer processes, uh, algorithms in essence, are able to take something that a lawyer would be looking at and then analyse it behind the scenes to come up with something that is effectively a summary document that provides either guidance to the lawyer or a prediction to the lawyer or even a draft document um, to the lawyer which they can then uh, review or tweak or use as the basis for a conversation with a client. Um, perhaps it might help if I give you a few examples um, to assist. So one of the things that used to happen a lot um, in, in law firms and still to an extent does from time to time is that in, in large transactions, um, for example, where um, firms are about to merge or um, an organisation is about to acquire another organisation or there's a, there's a um, dispute, um, a major dispute, um, then there will be a huge number of documents that will need to be reviewed by lawyers to work out um, from those documents which ones contain um, pertinent information um, and then um, the extent 
to which that pertinent information can be used for the benefit of the client. So what the information is and how to use it. And so in the past, um, a senior lawyer would um, often draw up the parameters um, to assist an army of more junior lawyers or paralegals to go to a data room um, where um, boxes and boxes and boxes of documents were stored and those junior lawyers and paralegals would work their way through as many of those documents as they could um, to find those key pieces of information that they could then um, turn into a summary, they can catalogue, hand back to the senior lawyer who then works out what to do with that information for the benefit of the client. Now, um, one form of artificial um, intelligence, natural language processing, can do some of those middle processes efficiently. Natural language processing is a means by which a, a computer, a piece of technology, without the need for human language to be translated into computer code, can read, in inverted commas, but work through all those documents and extract key pieces of information, provide a summary of that information, and in some contexts, a suggestion as to strategy, although that's really quite underdeveloped at this stage, so that the senior lawyer very swiftly and in a systematic fashion has access to the data he or she needs in order to be able to move on to that more sophisticated step, the development of the, the way in which the merger or the acquisition or the dispute should develop. Now, a computer undertaking those processes um, can do it much quicker than a human being. It doesn't need a break and it doesn't get tired. The senior lawyer is also able to backtrack through all of the um, computer processes to see how the computer got to the end result they got to. It's sometimes difficult for a lawyer to be able to work out how the junior lawyers got from A to B to C. They can obviously ask them, but it's not always that obvious to us as human beings how we got to where we got to in our reasoning. And so natural language processing is a way to deliver systematic, swift data extraction and summary functions to support the work of lawyers rather than replace the work of senior lawyers. Admittedly, it is replacing the work of an army of paralegals who will be working through and scanning through documents themselves. So that's one form. It's still in development. It's, it's got a long way to go before it becomes hugely sophisticated, but it is already being um, deployed by lots of law, law firms worldwide. The second form, perhaps, is complex machine learning, which is based on um, sophisticated statistical analysis, through which a computer analyzes huge quantities of data in order to come up with predictions or to surface patterns in data, which may inform lawyer decision-making. Lawyers can then feed back into that system to say, well, this, this was useful. It was useful to know this. It was useful for the computer to have identified these things. It was less useful for me to have access to these other things. And so over time, the, the technology is able to be refined through lawyer input in order to yield more targeted, more useful results for the lawyer, which meet with their strategic 
goals. That does rely on large data sets. It does rely on robust data. The results that come out of the analysis of data are only as good as the quality of the data that is being used by the algorithm. It can be the most effective algorithm in the world, but if the data is of poor quality, we're going to end up with poor quality results at the end. This is something that's being used in, in some jurisdictions that do have large quantities of data. For example, in, in the US, in federal cases where they have large data sets about how judges decide certain cases. It's used less in smaller jurisdictions just because the quantity of data isn't necessarily there. There are other forms as well. Um, which I'm not going to spend much time on because they are relatively underused at this stage in the context of, of law tech. Neural networks are a f make use of a form of fuzzy logic in order to be able, again, to provide some predictions, um, some potential strategy. Artificial social intelligence is being used in some, some contexts by law firms, although we come across it much more frequently when we deal with large organisations, often organisations that are selling goods or services to us, um, whether that's travel agents or Amazon or Microsoft or others. And we encounter artificial social intelligence when we're asked whether or not we want to make use of the chat function um, online. It's a form of AI where computers interact with human beings using human language. And so the chat box comes up and says, can we help you? And then we start keying in the, yes, I've got a problem with my order, or this has not arrived, or this wasn't what I think thought I ordered, or is my plane um, leaving on time today? And the artificial intelligence underpin it, the, underpinning it, the algorithm underpinning it, seeks to provide an answer to us if it is able to answer it without a human becoming involved in that conversation. Now there are limits to artificial social intelligence at the moment and any of us have tried to deal with these functions know that for basic simple factual situations it may well be possible for us to get an answer via these means. Um, but where that's not possible, the chat system diverts us to a human being um, on a phone or, alter or alternatively through, through a chat function where it's a real person answering rather than a computer. Um, as yet, relatively little harnessed by most law firms, although used in some contexts by firms providing fixed price services to clients of a limited means in, in a few jurisdictions. So those are the, the main ones that one will encounter in a, in a legal context, albeit the natural language processing is the one that is the most developed currently. Thanks, Lisa. Those are some really interesting points and observations. Now, we often hear that there are terms big data and sample bias, and that these come up time and time again when the subject of AI comes up. So in the context of law tech, the debate isn't really anything new. In the report, it highlights that data size and availability may be a constraint, but really how much of that is true and what can firms do to address this? So large data sets are very important for certain types of um, AI, but not for others. Um, so if we think about the, the document review, including contract review and analysis, um, natural language processing um, can be developed on data sets that aren't Jersey specific um, and then that technology can be used in a Jersey context. It, it doesn't matter whether it's Jersey or whether it's um, you know, um, England and Wales or whether it's Australia, that, that doesn't matter. So those technologies aren't that reliant on Jersey having a large data set. Um, so that's a bit of a myth. 
we don't have we don't have large data sets and so that stuff can't work um artificial social intelligence and these large data sets to train on but um except for possibly some some points of vocabulary which might be different as between different english speaking um jurisdictions and maybe the odd thing in the context of of cultural norms again that isn't something that that is problematic to use in a small jurisdiction at all yes i mean there are investment issues in the context of small jurisdictions because these things cost money but, but but in terms of the data sets there isn't an issue with that um now there are some issues it is true in coming up with cost effective solutions in legal research contexts um for jersey um that's because there won't be that many law firms that want to make use of those tools. And that means that um, developers of tools may be reluctant to develop them in a Jersey-specific context. Or if they do develop them, they may be very expensive. Um, and so that's more of an issue of, of, of money and cost-effectiveness than it is of, of data. Um, where large data sets, I think, probably are a limitation is in the context of um, anything that involves expertise augmentation with prediction and strategy development built in um, and that's not just in the context of Jersey that's in the context of many many um, other jurisdictions so if I give you an example to try and help with that there's there have been a number of major projects in the US um, which have been analysing all of the judgments, court-based judgments in particular areas, both geographical areas and subdisciplinary areas, to draw out how um, what factors seem to affect judicial decision-making um, and then pull out those key variables so that if you are a lawyer and you have a client that is in, in a particular state in the US and is about to um, want to start litigation in a particular context, you as the lawyer can key in the key key fact pattern um, of your client's case and work out, roughly speaking, what you think would likely happen if it were to go to court. Thanks, Lisa. That's really interesting. So I think on that, we can really surmise to say that it's not about the technology itself per se. It's around understanding the data that's being used and the outcomes that firms are trying to achieve. And that some of it is really about a person's a person and the data's the data. So it's not about Jersey or the legal system or the laws or the regulations of the land. It's around understanding the mechanics of the process and applying the human element to it. So it's really interesting. Thank you. We're running out of time today, but I cannot let you go without touching on the subject of legal and ethical use of law tech and AI. I remember on one of your visits I popped in to give you a cup of tea and about an hour later we were still chatting away on this very subject. Unfortunately we don't have an hour to spare today but could you please spend a few minutes sharing your thoughts on the subject and how Jersey-based law firms can use this thinking to help implement law tech solutions? Of course Adam. We had quite a quite an in-depth conversation as you said about ethics and AI and law tech and I found in having this conversation with a number of people that I've got partway through the conversation and realised we're actually talking about different things because the word ethical is used by different people to mean different things in different contexts and sometimes by the same people to mean different things in different contexts. And so perhaps it's useful for us to think about what it is we mean, what question is it we're asking where we're, when we're saying, is it ethical for us as lawyers, as professionals, to make use of AI in this way because often we're nodding in in a multitude of different directions sometimes we're asking the question is it legal are we allowed to do this with ai and for lawyers 
legality and integrity are so closely bound up, um, even if many members of the public don't necessarily um, see it that way. So when we're asking the question, is this ethical, we're sometimes asking, are we, are we allowed to do this by law? And the reality is, at the moment, um, the law hasn't really caught up with the pace of change in technology. And so when we look to the statute book, when we look to legislation, often we'll find that there is an absence of, of legislation in the area. And so the answer is, well, yes, we can do this. It is allowed by law. But that doesn't necessarily get us much further towards thinking about the ethical dimensions of making use of technology and making use of data, because often it's the data from clients that's being used to power the technology. And so on other occasions when we're talking about ethics, what we're actually talking about is, is it permissible for me as a lawyer to do this under our regulatory framework, within the bounds of our code of conduct, within what is acceptable to us as a legal community? Because we're asking ourselves, as a professional with honour and integrity, should I be doing this? Is it permissible for me to do this? What, what do the legal professional community think is appropriate for us to do? And again, there is relatively little within our practice statements, within our codes of conduct to guide our decision making here. What we do have is statements about how we use client data. And as much AI is um, has a makes use of client data in order to operate. When we're thinking about this, when we're thinking about ethicality in the context of codes, what we're often doing is thinking about how we pool client data. Covered by legal advice privilege, litigation privilege, you know, should we be pooling client data, which still remains the property of the client, which we assert we have an absolute right, which is the client's right, um, to retain as confidential for the benefit of the client, even keeping the state out of being able to access that data. How do we pool that data legitimately, ethically, in order to make use of it and train algorithms? And to what extent are we sharing that data, contrary to our code, contrary to legal advice privilege, in order to develop those tech tools? So most of those questions are going to be about how we as professionals make use of client data in a way which has honour and integrity and meets the requirements of our codes of conduct. But in other occasions when we're talking about ethicality, we're actually asking a different question. We're asking what should we do? There's nothing to stop us doing this in law and there's nothing to stop us doing this in our regulatory framework or in our codes of conduct. We're asking a normative question. Should I? Is it right for me to do this even if it's legal, even if it's permissible under my professional code. And I think that question is a broader one. What we're asking ourselves is, is this good for my client? But we're also asking, is this for the good of the legal system and the rule of law? Because as lawyers, we are all guardians of the rule of law. It may well be expeditious for me to do something for, for my client in this instance. But is it the right thing to do as someone who is charged with the responsibility of upholding and maintaining the standards of the whole legal system? to ensure that um, law is regarded by everyone as the foundation of our society. And what I'm about to do is what I'm about to do, likely to erode trust in the legal system. Am I doing this for a business reason or am I actually furthering the rule of law by doing this? And I think those questions are the more challenging because those go to our values. Those speak to law not as a business, but law as a profession, law as a vocation, law as a means by which we 
develop um, and enhance our society rather than sell out those key key um, values in order to be able to serve a client to serve in the short term at least um, our business interest so I think that's why when we're talking about ethics and AI it becomes quite a powerful and charged conversation because the law often isn't a mechanism that helps us simply because there's an absence of legislation. Professional codes don't necessarily provide us with a detailed guide um, that we can use as the basis for our decision making and so we have to revert back to those basic key thought processes around the rule of law, the legal system and what it is overall we participate in as lawyers. Okay, so that's a really powerful message and there are tremendous opportunities for AI and law tech. And really it seems to me that the question is more of an ethical one rather than a legal or regulatory one. And if firms can't explain what they or their AI is doing with the data, they probably shouldn't be using it. Or indeed, to put it another way, would my mum tell me off for doing this? We're coming to the close of our time today. So Lisa, in closing, if there was one thing our listeners could take from the research report, what would it be? It would be that technology is is an enabler. It isn't the solution in itself. And so buying new technology will not um, make the law firm more efficient, will not improve the quality of the work that's being done in itself. Technology is something that can augment what we do. It can improve the quality of what we do. It can reduce the cost, it can make us more efficient. But technology needs to run alongside having the right people who are um, engaging um, in a continuous cycle of improvement, who are thinking carefully about their legal practice or their support of legal practice and what their firm, what their chambers is trying to achieve for their clients and for themselves. And so technology is a great means by which we can do better but it isn't itself the solution great thanks lisa and thank you so much for joining us today on this podcast it's been really insightful and thank you to our members that took the time out of their diaries to contribute to our research report it's really helped shape what we've got as a powerful piece of insight and information and really this podcast today has explored our research paper the opportunities and threats posed to law tech by the legal industry in jersey And as a reminder, the report and further information is available at jerseyfinance.je. Thank you for listening to Jersey Heard. Don't forget to subscribe via your chosen podcast platform and follow us on our social media channels, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook.